Well, our reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through to 23. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, bishops of the Church of England, condemned by Queen Mary for their refusal to recant their biblical Christian faith. As they were being tied in front of Oxford to the stake to be burnt, Latimer is reported to have said to Ridley, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Richard Wormbrandt, Romanian Christian, pastor, imprisoned for, under two occasions for denouncing communism as incompatible with Christianity. He served more than 13 and a half years in prison, including three years in an underground cell with no light, and no sound. Tortured both physically and psychologically, he later recounted having the soles of his feet beaten until the flesh was torn off, and the next day being beaten again to the bone. He wrote that there were not words to describe that pain, yet he maintained a hope and compassion, even for those who tortured him, by looking at men, not as they are, but as they will be. I could see in our persecutors, he writes, a future Apostle Paul and the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. Frank and Elaine Rasmussen, members of a church that I pastored before I came to Trinity Hills. An elderly Christian couple had served the Lord faithfully for decades, they raised their eldest grandson, William. William 
was shot and killed by a security guard, Karen Brown, after he assaulted and robbed her in 2004. She was arrested, tried, and later acquitted of his murder. In an interview with the Sunday Telegraph in Sydney, it's written, Frank and Elaine Rasmussen, who shared their home with Mr Aquilina for eight years, said they have forgiven Ms Brown and even sent a touching sympathy card after her murder trial last month. We do wish you success in your life ahead, they wrote. You will always be in our heart. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. They were comparing him rather unfavorably with the super apostles. And he writes this. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. This apostle Paul wrote in the passage that Eliza read for us today, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Frank and Elaine Rasmussen could say the same thing. Latimer and Ridley, Richard Wormbrand, Christians across every continent, through every generation, can say the same thing. I know, Paul writes, what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. I've learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. Brothers and sisters, these people... Are they the super Christians? Are they the kind of next level up? There's the garden variety Christians, that's us. And then you've got these guys who are the Christian legends, the great saints. Do we ever think that we could respond, that we could act, that we could do the things that they did, that we could say that in every and any situation we are content that we have learned that so are there different levels of christianity or hopefully if you've been here for long enough you'll know the answer no no there are no different levels of christianity you are never more christian than that moment that you put your faith in the lord jesus christ that you respond to that proclamation of his death 
and resurrection with repentance and faith. You are never more saved. You are never more set apart, holy for him than at that moment. There is no two levels. There are no super Christians. So brothers and sisters, what is this secret that the Apostle Paul speaks of. Now, I want to unpack this this morning. I realised at nine o'clock, I think I tried to bite off too much. And so I'm going to eat slowly with you, and we'll see how we go. Okay, we may not, there's a couple of points in the outline. We may not quite get to them, uh, but I think it's important that we lay the foundations really well. Because I think Paul explains the Christian life absolutely beautifully in chapters 3 and chapters 4 of Philippians. Chapters 1 and 2 are great as well, uh, but there is a kind of a split between the two halves of the book. And here, Paul really, in the passage that Eliza read for us, he unravels, he unfolds for us what the life lived out of this secret is. Now, when you come across the idea of secrets or mysteries in the Bible, it's always a secret that has been revealed. Okay, so when Paul speaks of the mystery of the gospel, there's not like some bits of the gospel that we don't know. We know the gospel. The mystery is that it was hidden previously and it has now been made plain. And so what Paul here, when he speaks about this secret, it's not some kind of really fancy, um, arcane knowledge that only a few elite Christians get to. It is actually the gospel. And you see it there in chapter 3, verse 9. This passage contrasts a righteousness that comes from my own, Paul writes, comes through the law but with one that comes through faith in Christ a gift from God received by faith so let's talk about this idea of righteousness what is righteousness now I want to keep you awake I've been going for eight and a half minutes now you talk to each other you tell each other what righteousness is and then you're going to tell me and I'm going to adjust my notes according to what you tell me. So go for it. Spend just a couple of minutes, or not even a couple of minutes, a minute. Tell me what righteousness is, or tell each other. Can I say, theologians have written entire books on this topic, and you've just summarised it in about 40 seconds. It's really good. You guys are just, if there were super Christians, you'd be them. Okay, does anyone want to tell me what righteousness is? In a biblical sense, but there is a general sense that you can be righteous. So if you drive down the road and the sign says 60 and you are 60 or below, with respect to that sign, you are righteous. You are in right relationship with that law. Yes? Okay. Okay, so, and Jess has pointed out, biblically, the term righteous, uh, righteousness, is used to describe being in a right relationship with God, particularly but you might be here this morning thinking, well, actually, that's all well, good and few Christian people, but I'm not a Christian. Or maybe you're thinking, actually, I am a Christian. I love that. But actually, what about my non-Christian friends? Does Philippians 3 verse 9 have anything to say to them? Well, yes, it does. Because a God 
is whatever is at the centre of our life. So you remember we, we sang that song just before uh, I came up, before we prayed, and, or after we prayed, before or after, whenever, we, we sang a song, you know, and, and it talked about our hearts being God's throne. You remember singing that? Do I need to go back? I probably need to go back. Let's go back. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Where is it? Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer. Uh, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart is thy own. It shall be thy royal throne. That captures that idea that Christ reigns in our heart. He is the object. He is the center of our being, of our identity, of our purpose, of our meaning. He rules. Now, everyone has something that rules, okay? Everyone has a functional center, okay? Everyone has something that is key to their identity. So when you think about it, what is it that comes... If someone said, describe yourself in a few words, what is it that comes into mind? What is it that comes into mind when you think, you know, my life is a good life because... Or, my life would be a good life if... Dot, 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 fill in the blanks. So you might say, like if you're me, you know, I know my life is, has meaning and purpose because I, I'm just one of the most beautiful people around. Uh, I'm good-looking, I'm intelligent, um, I'm charming and witty. Um, really, they're, they're th- that's self-image. I, can I say, that's not me. Uh, <laughs> But that self-image, that understanding, I could say, if that was honestly what I said, my beauty, my intelligence, my charm, who I am, my personality, could be that functional centre. For some of us, you could say, actually, I'm a parent, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a grandmother, I'm a grandfather, and that becomes our key identity. Or, as was the case when I was growing up, it's probably less so now, but those Gen Xs out there, we were very good at defining ourselves in terms of our role. I am a teacher, I am a lawyer, I am a whatever. Those things are functional centres, okay? And Jesus is one of those, but one amongst a whole lot. And if you use a biblical term, those things become gods, okay? David uh, Foster Wallace, himself and not a Christian, he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone has something at the heart. Another Christian guy said, nature abhors a vacuum. You've got to have someone on the throne, Okay, everyone worships. The only choice, Foster Wallace says, is what we get to worship. And if you think about life, something is at the centre. It doesn't need to be a religious thing. It doesn't need to be God. It can be very ordinary, very mundane. It is the foundation of your life and it is the thing that you worship. And Augustine... A long, long time ago, said this. He said, whether you will it or not, a man or a woman is necessarily a slave. You serve 
the thing by which means of which you seek to be happy. So if being the most beautiful person in the room is what makes you happy, you serve that. You are enslaved to that, Augustine would actually say. You follow that wherever you lead and fears anyone who seems to have the power to rob you of that. Okay? You serve those things. We worship those things. Everyone worships. And every God, whether it's a big G God or an ordinary mundane God that we may not even call God, has rules. Okay, they have righteousness is obeying those rules. Okay, so this is, this is all making sense. Okay, so for Paul, the Apostle Paul in chapter 3, for him, he had taken a vision of God and changed it into a, an idol. And he recognises this. And he had all these rules that he saw he was righteous in terms of. So it's there in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So what's he say? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Tick. Okay, I was of the people of Israel. Tick. Okay, I am the tribe of Benjamin. Tick. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Tick. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Tick. So this Pharisee is ultra-Orthodox, hardcore. As for zeal, I persecuted Christians. No one could fault my Judaism. No one could fault my religion. I put to death people who disagreed with me. Tick. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul comes down and says he is completely blameless. He is righteous in relationship with this idea of God. But as I said, these things don't need to be religious. So let's explore this a little bit. What if uh, popularity was your God, okay? So the thing that defined you, the thing that gave you happiness, the thing that gave you direction was being popular. What would some of the laws be? Anyone? How do you know you're righteous in relationship to your God of popularity? Yeah? Lots of friends, okay. Anything else? People think of you as pretty cool, you know? Okay, if you can tick those boxes, you're starting to feel good about yourself. You're starting to appease this God. Okay, family. What would some of the laws be for family? You could come up with lots, but what could they be? Anyone? Come on. Well behaved. Yeah, that's the second one down. The first one, a wonderful spouse, a happy marriage, you know. This is something, I find this quite funny actually. Karen uh, and I once found another bunch of kids. They were playing the Munros, you know. If you could be as good as us and people played to be your family in a dollhouse, you know. It's Cameron and Karen and isn't that wonderful? But if, God, if your God is your family, you want that, don't you? You want this great marriage. And you see how that's a good thing. It's a right thing. But it can become an ultimate thing. A happy, successful and polite kids. Thank you, cares. You know, we have this image. 
that we want to keep this God happy. We can say, I'm a good parent. I'm a great husband, a wonderful wife. Look at me. And when these things fall apart, that's another matter. If beauty is your God, if at the centre of your being you say, I'm a beautiful person, okay, what's a law, what's a, what's a, a rule this God could have? Just watch the makeup ads that are on television, most of the fashion. No visible flaws. Okay, and when you walk in the room, what do you want everyone to do? <gasps> Obvious impact on others. Okay, I saw this go horribly wrong where two of the beautiful girls in my year 12, they turned up to our year 12 formal wearing the same dress. The God of beauty was angry that night. <laughs> okay, so how would they feel? Imagine how they feel if beauty was their... Oh, I'm not judging them. But if beauty was the centre of their being... I imagine they would have wanted to walk out of that room, actually run out of that room crying. What a terrible thing. We're wearing the same dress. Ah, intellect. Okay, some of you have worshipped the God of intellect recently. How do you know if you're righteous? You got top grades. Okay. And uh, recognition, titles, degrees, all that kind of thing. But as you can see, all these things are good things. They can be good things. They don't be bad things. But a righteousness in relationship to these things does not last. Death and age levels everyone. I've been around for long enough to realise there is always someone smarter. Someone else's kids are always better behaved. Okay? Uh, that is always the way. And that's not just my kids. That's your kids as well. So don't judge me. Okay. You know, there is someone who's always more beautiful than you are. That pimple will always come up at the wrong moment. It will be there. The lines will come. And eventually you look like you're in a wind tunnel if you've had all those facelifts and all those kind of things. You cannot satisfy these gods. And the Apostle Paul came to the same conclusion. He was achieving, he was scoring. He said, as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. And do you remember how he appraised it? He said, whatever were gains, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage. Now, you will remember that the term that we translate garbage is a polite euphemism for what is on that spade. That is what Paul says. All these things that I built my life on they cannot last. They cannot take the weight. And they are basically refuse to be shoveled out and used to fertilise the garden. The Apostle Paul came to realise that all his religion, all his striving, was nothing but a pile of manure. And the same thing can be said for all your academic credentials, for your beautiful family, for your popularity, for your beauty, for everything that you build your life upon. Those things are good things. I'm not saying chuck them out, walk away from your marriages, do that. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if you build your life on them, they will not take the weight. 
you will fail them and you will feel guilty. You will be crushed and in despair. I was swimming the other day and next to me in the lane, there were these two people, a guy and a girl, and they were pretty hardcore swimmers. And I don't think I'm the slowest swimmer in the world, but these guys left me for dead. They were wearing those kind of show-off caps that said something like world champion triathlon or something like that. Um, And about two-thirds of the way through their training session, uh, all of a sudden the girl breaks down into uncontrollable sobbing. And now I've been around lots of swimming pools, okay, I haven't ever seen that happen before. Like, you know, what's happened? <laughs> what's happened? And, and hearing the guy talk to her, he's saying, oh, remember, you got hit by the bus six weeks ago. You've had six weeks out of the pool. What she was trying to come to terms with was that her God of athletic performance, she was failing. She wasn't as fast, she wasn't as strong, she wasn't able to go as far as she thought she was meant to. And she was beside herself with grief. We will fail our gods, or ultimately they will fail us when we realise, like Paul realised, that they cannot take the weight. At the end of the day, you will stand before judgement And to say, I was the smartest, I was the most beautiful, I had the nicest kids, my garden, did you see my garden, Jesus? It was wonderful. It will not take the weight. So what does Paul say is the other option? The other option is what Paul here describes as a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. All those other righteousness is about what we have done, about us keeping the rules, us ticking the boxes, us achieving. So whether you call that big L law, Old Testament law, or whether we make up all these laws for ourselves, small L law, it's still works-based. But Paul contrasts it here with grace-based, a gift, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, faith in what he did. Tim Keller summed it up like this. He says, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died to bring us to God. Jesus stood in our place, took the just penalty for our sins and rose again, conquering death and sin and evil And that righteousness that he achieved comes to us through faith. Faith is merely us acknowledging our need and asking Christ for what we cannot have by ourselves. And what the Apostle Paul saw in that, what we see in that, if we are one of God's, is that nothing can Shake this. There is always someone more beautiful. There is always someone who is smarter. There is always someone whose family is better. Their house is nicer. Their car is flashier. They have a better job than you. They even smell nicer than you do. 
But there is no one who is more righteous than Christ. And by faith, God gives us that. He looks at us and he sees Christ. And our works don't come into it. And this is what Christianity is built in. This is why the Apostle Paul can say, I have learned to be content in any and every situation. Can you see that link? Why is he content? Because his status as a child of God, his security knowing that nothing can shake his world, not saying that he can't go through hard times and suffering, but ultimately he is God, God is his, and nothing can change that. His status as a forgiven, loved child of God is unimpeachable. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you go to work tomorrow, the boss calls you in and you're sacked. That's sad. But it doesn't change your status before God. You go home and the kids are somewhat less than polite to you. That's sad but it doesn't shake your status before God. No matter what happens to you, it doesn't change that because that is done. It is not what we do. Often when it comes to our circumstances, we're a bit like reptiles. So as you think about it, we, we kind of pick up what's going around us. If you were here at nine, you would have got Kez's kids talk, wonderful kids talk. She described the emotional experience of going to a T20 game. And she played some of it. And we had cricket here and everyone was waving around sixes and fours. And so when they hit a six, what do you want to do? You want to go, yeah, okay. And last night when I was watching and Donnie hit a six, I just, oh, you know, and the next guy, he then edges one down to third man for a four. So, oh. Then he hits one over the infield and we lose the game. And we go up and we go down, depending on what's happening around us. People around us affirm us. We feel good. People around us ignore us. We feel terrible. Things happen. Serious things happen. We go up, we go down, we go all over the place. We can end up a little bit like a ship in a storm tossed around. But the Apostle Paul has what we have an anchor for our souls. And so if we are going to go and say, I have learned the secret of being content, the secret is this. It is living every day in the finished work of Christ. It is taking what Christ has done and digging it deep into your life. The Christian life growing into maturity isn't moving away from the gospel. It is going deeper into the gospel. Brothers and sisters, never leave the gospel behind. Because the gospel is the firm foundation under our feet. The status as heirs, as beloved sons and daughters, that nothing can shake. Regardless of what is happening around you, regardless of what is happening to you, where was the Apostle Paul that he wrote this? He was in prison. He's got 
Christian brothers and sisters trying to make his life hard by stirring up people by preaching the gospel. He's got people seemingly forgetting him. Did you pick that up? It's great that you've renewed your concern for me. Okay? He's sitting there in prison, seeming to be abandoned. If anyone's got a feeling a bit hard done by, we read through his list in Corinthians. Anyone here been beaten 39 times with rods? That was the harshest penalty the Jewish council could administer. They did their worst to him. Not once, not twice, three times. They stoned him. He got shipwrecked. He was chased all around the place by false believers, by Gentiles, by Jews, by wild animals, all sorts of things. If anyone had excuse to feel sorry for himself, the Apostle Paul was that. But brothers and sisters, he says he is content because he has every spiritual blessing in Christ and nothing can take that away. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, he lists a whole lot of things. And then he comes to the conclusion that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is the secret. The secret that has been made known that we are to dwell in, that we are to sink deeper into, that we are to apply in every part of our lives, which is growing in maturity. Brothers and sisters, as we think about next year, this year that is to come, 2016, what I want to put before you is you need to keep growing. You need to keep growing up. You need to look at yourself with an unholy, not an unholy, with a holy dissatisfaction. Holy dissatisfaction. Not one that accuses, but there is so much more for us to experience of the grace and love and mercy and wonder and power of God. Otherwise, we're like, you know, 12 year olds who say, I don't want to grow up. You know, that whole Peter Pan thing. Someone once said, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. (laughs) A Christian should never say that. We should be longing for maturity. And as we think about growing, we need to think about it like running up an escalator going the wrong way. That our natural tendency will always be to take us backwards. That we will always tend to forget. You notice how Paul and Peter often write, it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things. If you've been coming to Trinity Hills for a while, you notice that I tend to repeat myself. Do you notice I tend to repeat myself? I tend to repeat myself. And I do that totally shamelessly because the gospel is what you need to hear. The gospel is what I need to hear. And as we go forward this year, what do you need more of? You need more of the gospel. Not that you don't have it all, but you need it to dig it more deeply into your life. And you do that, you do that here each Sunday. You do that at home in the word and in prayer. You do that in fellowship with one another, whether it's in basement or blast or growth groups. 
as you are in tight relationship with another around God's word, you're growing together in his word. You're learning together. You're helping each other. The Apostle Paul gives us what could be a memory verse, I think, for growth groups. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Growth groups are about growing together. Anne's going to come up in just a moment and speak to you about growth groups. Can I underline the essential nature of community? Because we are a gospel community. And as we meet together, not just to be friends together, but to be brothers and sisters centered on the gospel together, to want to see each other grow in grace together, to understand God's love more. Brothers and sisters, that is a great privilege that we have. So don't lightly put that aside. I'm going to pray. And then Anne's going to come and talk to you briefly about growth groups. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that we could never have, that you have freely given us through faith in Christ. We thank you for his achievements, his perfect life, his death in our place, his bearing of our sin, our penalty, so that we might not have to. He's paying the price that we could never pay. And Father, his victorious resurrection that ushers us into new life in him with you. Father, help us to never turn away, never move on from the gospel. Help us to grow, to grow deeper, into the gospel, into your love, into your grace, into your mercy, that we might know you more fully, serve you more closely. And Father, that we also might reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus more completely. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please give your attention to Anne. He's going to talk to you.